0: Chapter thirteen part two of Sons and Lovers by d h Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. So there went on a battle between them. She knew she never fully had him. Some part, big and vital in him, she had no hold over, nor did she ever try to get it, or even to realise what it was. And he knew in some way that she held herself still as Mrs Dawes. She did not love Dawes never had loved him, but she believed he loved her, at least depended on her. She felt a certain surety about him that she never felt with Paul Morel. Her passion for the young man had filled her soul, given her a certain satisfaction, eased her of her self-mistrust, her doubt. Whatever else she was, she was inwardly assured. It was almost as if she had gained herself, and now stood distinct and complete." She had received her confirmation, but she never believed that her life belonged to Paul Morel, nor his to her. They would separate in the end, and the rest of her life would be an ache after him. But at any rate, she knew now, she was sure of herself, and the same could almost be said of him. Together they had received the baptism of life, each through the other, but now their missions were separate. Where he wanted to go, she could not come with him, they would have to part sooner or later. Even if they married and were faithful to each other, still he would have to leave her, go on alone, and she would only have to attend to him when he came home. But it was not possible. Each wanted a mate to go side by side with. Clara had gone to live with her mother upon Mapley Plains. One evening, as Paul and she were walking along Woodborough Road, they met Dawes. Morel knew something about the bearing of the man approaching, but he was absorbed in his thinking at the moment, so that only his artist's eye watched the form of the stranger. Then he suddenly turned to Clara with a laugh, and put his hand on her shoulder, saying, laughing, But we walk side by side, and yet I am in London, arguing with an imaginary open, and where are you? At that instant doors passed, almost touching Morel. The young man glanced, saw the dark brown eyes burning, full of hate, and yet tired. Who was that? he asked of Clara. It was Baxter, she replied. Paul took his hand from her shoulder and glanced round. Then he saw again distinctly the man's form as it approached him. Dawes still walked erect, with his fine shoulders flung back and his face lifted, but there was a furtive look in his eyes that gave one the impression he was trying to get unnoticed past every person he met, glancing suspiciously to see what they thought of him and his hands seemed to be wanting to hide. He wore old clothes, the trousers were torn at the knee, and the handkerchief tied round his throat was dirty, but his cap was still defiantly over one eye. As she saw him, Clara felt guilty. There was a tiredness and despair on his face that made her hate him, because it hurt her. He looks shady, said Paul, but the note of pity in his voice reproached her and made her feel hard. "'His true commonness comes out,' she answered. "'Do you hate him?' he asked. "'You talk,' she said, "'about the cruelty of women. "'I wish you knew the cruelty of men "'in their brute force. "'They simply don't know that the woman exists.' "'Don't I?' he said. "'No,' she answered. "'Don't I know you exist?' "'About me you know nothing,' she said bitterly. "'About me?' "'Not more than Baxter knew?' he asked. "'Perhaps not as much.' He felt puzzled and helpless, and angry. There she walked, unknown to him, though they had been through such experience together. "'But you know me pretty well,' he said. She did not answer. "'Did you know Baxter as well as you know me?' he asked. "'He wouldn't let me,' she said. "'And I have let you know me.' "'It's what men won't let you do. They won't let you get really near to them,' she said. "'And haven't I let you?' "'Yes,' she answered slowly, "'but you've never come near to me.' "'You can't come out of yourself. You can't. Baxter could do that better than you.' He walked on, pondering. He was angry with her for preferring Baxter to him. "'You begin to value Baxter now you've not got him,' he said. "'No. I can only see where he was different from you.' But he felt she had a grudge against him. One evening, as they were coming home over the fields, she startled him by asking, "'Do you think it's worth it, the—the sex part?' the act of loving itself yes is it worth anything to you but how can you separate it he said it's the culmination of everything all our intimacy culminates then not for me she said he was silent a flash of hate for her came up after all she was dissatisfied with him even there where he thought they fulfilled each other but he believed her too implicitly i feel she continued slowly as if I hadn't got you, as if all of you weren't there, and as if it weren't me you were taking. Who, then? Something just for yourself. It has been fine, so that I daren't think of it, but is it me you want, or is it it? He again felt guilty. Did he leave Clara out of count and take simply woman? But he thought that was splitting a hair. When I had Baxter actually had him, "'Then I did feel as if I had all of him,' she said. "'And it was better?' he asked. "'Yes, yes, it was more whole. "'I don't say you haven't given me more than he ever gave me, "'or could give you. "'Yes, perhaps, but you've never given me yourself.' "'He knitted his brows angrily. "'If I start to make love to you,' he said, "'I just go like a leaf down the wind.' "'And leave me out of count,' she said. "'And then it is nothing to you?' he asked almost rigid with chagrin. It's something, and sometimes you have carried me away, right away, I know, and I reverence you for it, but— Don't butt me, he said, kissing her quickly as a fire ran through him. She submitted, and was silent. It was true, as he said. As a rule, when he started love-making, the emotion was strong enough to carry with it everything— reason, soul, blood—in a great sweep like the trent carries bodily its backswirls and intertwinings noiselessly gradually the little criticisms the little sensations were lost thought also went everything borne along in one flood he became not a man with a mind but a great instinct his hands were like creatures living his limbs his body were all life and consciousness subject to no will of his but living in themselves Just as he was, so it seemed the vigorous, wintry stars were strong also with life. He and they struck with the same pulse of fire, and the same joy of strength, which held the bracken frond stiff near his eyes, held his own body firm. It was as if he and the stars and the dark herbage and Clara were licked up in an immense tongue of flame, which tore onwards and upwards. Everything rushed along in living beside him, everything was still, perfect in itself, along with him. This wonderful stillness in each thing in itself, while it was being borne along in a very ecstasy of living, seemed the highest point of bliss. And Clara knew this held him to her, so she trusted altogether to the passion. It, however, failed her very often. They did not often reach again the height of that once when the peewits had called. Gradually, Some mechanical effort spoilt their loving, or, when they had splendid moments, they had them separately, and not so satisfactorily. So often he seemed merely to be running on alone. Often they realized it had been a failure, not what they wanted. He left her knowing that evening had only made a little split between them. Their loving grew more mechanical, without the marvellous glamour. Gradually they began to introduce novelties, TO GET BACK SOME OF THE FEELING OF SATISFACTION. THEY WOULD BE VERY NEAR, ALMOST DANGEROUSLY NEAR TO THE RIVER, SO THAT THE BLACK WATER RAN NOT FAR FROM HIS FACE, AND IT GAVE A LITTLE THRILL. OR THEY LOVED SOMETIMES IN A LITTLE HOLLOW BELOW THE FENCE OF THE PATH WHERE PEOPLE WERE PASSING OCCASIONALLY ON THE EDGE OF TOWN, AND THEY HEARD FOOTSTEPS COMING, ALMOST FELT THE VIBRATION OF THE TREAD, AND THEY HEARD WHAT THE PASSERS-BY SAID, STRANGE LITTLE THINGS THAT WERE NEVER INTENDED TO BE HEARD and afterwards each of them was rather ashamed, and these things caused a distance between the two of them. He began to despise her a little, as if she had merited it. One night he left her to go to Daybrook Station, over the fields. It was very dark, with an attempt at snow, although the spring was so far advanced. Morel had not much time, he plunged forward. The town ceases almost abruptly on the edge of a steep hollow. There the houses with their yellow lights stand up against the darkness. He went over the stile, and dropped quickly into the hollow of the fields. Under the orchard one warm window shone in Swineshead Farm. Paul glanced round. Behind, the houses stood on the brim of the dip, black against the sky, like wild beasts, glaring curiously with yellow eyes, down into the darkness. It was the town that seemed savage and uncouth, glaring on the clouds at the back of him. Some creature stirred under the willows of the farm pond. It was too dark to distinguish anything. He was close up to the next stile before he saw a dark shape leaning against it. The man moved aside. "'Good evening,' he said. "'Good evening,' Morel answered, not noticing. "'Paul Morel,' said the man. Then he knew it was Dawes. The man stopped his way. "'I've got you, have I?' he said awkwardly. "'I shall miss my train,' said Paul. He could see nothing of Dawes' face. The man's teeth seemed to chatter as he talked. "'You're going to get it from me now,' said Dawes. Morel attempted to move forward. The other man stepped in front of him. "'Are you going to take that topcoat off?' he said. "'Or are you going to lie down to it?' Paul was afraid the man was mad. "'But,' he said, "'I don't know how to fight.' "'All right, then,' answered Dawes and before the younger man knew where he was, he was staggering backwards from a blow across the face. The whole night went black. He tore off his overcoat and coat, dodging a blow, and flung the garments over doors. The latter swore savagely. Morel, in his shirt-sleeves, was now alert and furious. He felt his whole body unsheath itself like a claw. He could not fight, so he would use his wits. The other man became more distinct to him. He could see particularly the shirt-breast. Dawes stumbled over Paul's coats, then came rushing forward. The young man's mouth was bleeding. It was the other man's mouth he was dying to get at, and the desire was anguish in its strength. He stepped quickly through the stile, and as Dawes was coming through after him, like a flash he got a blow-in over the other's mouth. He shivered with pleasure. Dawes advanced slowly, spitting. Paul was afraid. He moved round to get to the stile again. Suddenly, from out of nowhere, came a great blow against his ear, that sent him falling helpless backwards. He heard Dawes' heavy panting, like a wild beast's. Then came a kick on his knee, giving him such agony that he got up and, quite blind, leapt clean under his enemy's guard. He felt blows and kicks, but they did not hurt. He hung on to the bigger man like a wild cat, till at last Dawes fell with a crash, losing his presence of mind. Paul went down with him. Pure instinct brought his hands to the man's neck, and, before doors, in frenzy and agony, could wrench him free, he had got his fists twisted in the scarf, and his knuckles dug in the throat of the other man. He was a pure instinct, without reason or feeling. His body, hard and wonderful in itself, cleaved against the struggling body of the other man, not a muscle in him relaxed. He was quite unconscious, Only his body had taken upon itself to kill this other man. For himself he had neither feeling nor reason. He lay pressed hard against his adversary, his body adjusting itself to its one pure purpose of choking the other man, resisting exactly at the right moment, with exactly the right amount of strength, the struggles of the other. Silent, intent, unchanging, gradually pressing its knuckles deeper, feeling the struggles of the other body become wilder and more frenzied. Tighter and tighter grew his body, like a screw that is gradually increasing in pressure, till something breaks. Then suddenly he relaxed, full of wonder and misgiving. Dawes had been yielding. Morel felt his body flame with pain as he realized what he was doing. He was all bewildered. Dawes' struggles suddenly renewed themselves in a furious spasm. Paul's hands were wrenched, torn out of the scarf in which they were knotted, and he was flung away, helpless. He heard the horrid sound of the others gasping, but he lay stunned then, still dazed. He felt the blows of the others' feet, and lost consciousness. Dawes, grunting with pain like a beast, was kicking the prostrate body of his rival. Suddenly the whistle of the train shrieked two fields away. He turned round and glared suspiciously. What was coming? He saw the lights of the train draw across his vision. It seemed to him people were approaching. He made off across the field into Nottingham, and dimly in his consciousness, as he went, he felt on his foot the place where his boot had knocked against one of the lad's bones. The knock seemed to re-echo inside him. He hurried to get away from it. Morel gradually came to himself. He knew where he was and what had happened, but he did not want to move. He lay still with tiny bits of snow tickling his face. It was pleasant to lie quite, quite still. The time passed. It was the bits of snow that kept rousing him when he did not want to be roused. At last his will clicked into action. "'I mustn't lie here,' he said. "'It's silly.' But still he did not move. "'I said I was going to get up,' he repeated. "'Why don't I?' And still it was some time before he had sufficiently pulled himself together to stir— Then gradually he got up. Pain made him sick and dazed, but his brain was clear. Reeling, he groped for his coats and got them on, buttoning his overcoat up to his ears. It was some time before he found his cap. He did not know whether his face was still bleeding. Walking blindly, every step making him sick with pain, he went back to the pond and washed his face and hands. The icy water hurt, but helped to bring him back to himself. He crawled back up the hill to the tram. He wanted to get to his mother. He must get to his mother. That was his blind intention. He covered his face as much as he could, and struggled sickly along. Continually the ground seemed to fall away from him as he walked, and he felt himself dropping with a sickening feeling into space. So, like a nightmare, he got through with the journey home. Everybody was in bed. He looked at himself. His face was discoloured and smeared with blood, almost like a dead man's face. He washed it and went to bed. The night went by in delirium. In the morning he found his mother looking at him. Her blue eyes, they were all he wanted to see. She was there. He was in her hands. "'It's not much, mother,' he said. "'It was Baxter Dawes.' "'Tell me where it hurts you,' she said quietly. "'I don't know. My shoulder. Say it was a bicycle accident, mother.' He could not move his arm. Presently, Minnie, the little servant, came upstairs with some tea. Your mother's nearly frightened me out of my wits. Fainted away,' she said. He felt he could not bear it. His mother nursed him. He told her about it. "'And now I should have done with them all,' she said quietly. "'I will, mother.' She covered him up. "'And don't think about it,' she said. "'Only try to go to sleep. The doctor won't be here till eleven. He had a dislocated shoulder, and the second day acute bronchitis set in. His mother was pale as death now, and very thin. She would sit and look at him, then away into space. There was something between them that neither dared mention. Clara came to see him. Afterwards he said to his mother, She makes me tired, mother. Yes, I wish she wouldn't come, Mrs. Morel replied. Another day Miriam came, but she seemed almost like a stranger to him. You know, I don't care about them, mother, he said. "'I'm afraid you don't, my son,' she replied sadly. "'It was given out everywhere that it was a bicycle accident. "'Soon he was able to go to work again, "'but now there was a constant sickness and gnawing at his heart. "'He went to Clara, but there seemed, as it were, nobody there. "'He could not work. "'He and his mother seemed almost to avoid each other. "'There was some secret between them which they could not bear. "'He was not aware of it. "'He only knew that his life seemed unbalanced.' as if it were going to smash into pieces. Clara did not know what was the matter with him. She realized that he seemed unaware of her. Even when he came to her, he seemed unaware of her. Also, he was somewhere else. She felt she was clutching for him, and he was somewhere else. It tortured her, and so she tortured him. For a month at a time, she kept him at arm's length. He almost hated her, and was driven to her in spite of himself. He went mostly into the company of men, was always at the George or the White Horse. His mother was ill, distant, quiet, shadowy. He was terrified of something. He dared not look at her. Her eyes seemed to grow darker, her face more waxen. Still she dragged about at her work. At Whitsuntide he said he would go to Blackpool for four days with his friend Newton. The latter was a big, jolly fellow, with a touch of the bounder about him. Paul said his mother must go to Sheffield to stay a week with Annie, who lived there. Perhaps the change would do her good. Mrs. Morel was attending a woman's doctor in Nottingham. He said her heart and her digestion were wrong. She consented to go to Sheffield, though she did not want to, but now she would do everything her son wished of her. Paul said he would come for her on the fifth day, and stay also in Sheffield till the holiday was up. It was agreed. The two young men set off gaily for Blackpool. Mrs. Morrell was quite lively as Paul kissed her and left her. Once at the station he forgot everything. Four days were clear, not an anxiety, not a thought. The two young men simply enjoyed themselves. Paul was like another man. None of himself remained, no Clara, no Miriam, no mother that fretted him. He wrote to them all, and long letters to his mother, but they were jolly letters that made her laugh. He was having a good time, as young fellows will in a place like Blackpool, and underneath it all was a shadow for her. Paul was very gay, excited at the thought of staying with his mother in Sheffield. Newton was to spend the day with them. Their train was late. Joking, laughing, with their pipes between their teeth, the young men swung their bags onto the tramcar. Paul had bought his mother a little collar of real lace that he wanted to see her wear, so that he could tease her about it. Annie lived in a nice house, and had a little maid. Paul ran gaily up the steps. He expected his mother laughing in the hall, but it was Annie who opened to him. She seemed distant to him. He stood a second in dismay. Annie let him kiss her cheek. "'Is my mother ill?' he said. "'Yes. She's not very well. Don't upset her. Is she in bed?' "'Yes.' And then the queer feeling went over him, as if all the sunshine had gone out of him, and it was all shadow." He dropped the bag and ran upstairs. Hesitating, he opened the door. His mother sat up in bed, wearing a dressing-gown of old rose-colour. She looked at him almost as if she were ashamed of herself, pleading to him, humble. He saw the ashy look about her. "'Mother,' he said. "'I thought you were never coming,' she answered gaily. But he only fell on his knees at the bedside, and buried his face in the bedclothes, crying in agony, and saying, "'Mother!' "'Mother! Mother!' She stroked his hair slowly with her thin hand. "'Don't cry,' she said. "'Don't cry. It's nothing.' But he felt as if his blood was melting into tears, and he cried in terror and pain. "'Don't! Don't cry,' his mother faltered. Slowly she stroked his hair. Shocked out of himself, he cried, and the tears hurt in every fibre of his body. Suddenly he stopped, but he dared not lift his face out of the bedclothes, You are late. Where have you been?" his mother asked. The train was late, he replied, muffled in the sheet. Yes, that miserable central. Is Newton come? Yes. I'm sure you must be hungry, and they've kept dinner waiting. With a wrench he looked up at her. What is it, mother? he asked brutally. She averted her eyes as she answered. Only a bit of a tumour, my boy. You needn't trouble. It's been there—the lump has a long time. Up came the tears again. His mind was clear and hard, but his body was crying. "'Where?' he said. She put her hand on her side. "'Here. But you know they can't sweal a tumour away.' He stood feeling dazed and helpless, like a child. He thought perhaps it was as she said. Yes, he reassured himself it was so. But all the while his blood and his body knew definitely what it was. He sat down on the bed and took her hand, "'She never had but the one ring, her wedding ring. "'When were you poorly?' he asked. "'It was yesterday it began,' she answered submissively. "'Pains, yes, but not more than I have often had at home. "'I believe Dr. Ansell is an alarmist.' "'You ought not to have travelled alone,' he said, to himself more than to her. "'As if that had anything to do with it,' she answered quickly. "'They were silent for a while. "'Now go and have your dinner,' she said. "'You must be hungry.' Have you had yours? Yes, a beautiful soul I had. Annie is good to me. They talked a little while, then he went downstairs. He was very white and strained. Newton sat in miserable sympathy. After dinner he went into the scullery to help Annie to wash up. The little maid had gone on an errand. Is it really a tumour? he asked. Annie began to cry again. The pain she had yesterday! I never saw anybody suffer like it! she cried. Leonard ran like a madman for Dr. Ansell, and when she'd got to bed, she said to me, "'Annie, look at this lump on my side. I wonder what it is.' And there I looked, and I thought I should have dropped. Paul, as true as I'm here, it's a lump as big as my double fist. I said, "'Good gracious, Mother, whenever did that come? Why, child,' she said, "'it's been there a long time. I thought I should have died, our Paul. I did.' "'She's been having these pains for months at home, and nobody looking after her.' "'The tears came to his eyes, then dried suddenly. "'But she's been attending the doctor in Nottingham, and she never told me,' he said. "'If I'd have been at home,' said Annie, I should have seen for myself.' "'He felt like a man walking in unrealities. "'In the afternoon he went to see the doctor. "'The latter was a shrewd, lovable man. "'But what is it?' he said. "'The doctor looked at the young man, then knitted his fingers.' It may be a large tumour which has formed in the membrane, he said slowly, and which we may be able to make go away. Can't you operate? asked Paul. Not there, replied the doctor. Are you sure? Quite. Paul meditated a while. Are you sure it's a tumour? he asked. Why did Dr. Jameson in Nottingham never find out anything about it? She's been going to him for weeks, and he's treated her her heart and indigestion. Mrs. Morel "'Never told Dr. Jameson about the lump,' said the doctor. "'And do you know it's a tumour? "'No, I am not sure. "'What else might it be? "'You asked my sister if there was cancer in the family. "'Might it be cancer?' "'I don't know. "'And what shall you do? "'I should like an examination with Dr. Jameson. "'Then have one. "'You must arrange about that. "'His fee wouldn't be less than ten guineas to come here from Nottingham. "'When would you like him to come?' "'I will call in this evening, and we will talk it over.' "'Paul went away, biting his lip. "'His mother could come downstairs for tea, the doctor said. "'Her son went upstairs to help her. "'She wore the old rose dressing-gown that Leonard had given Annie, "'and, with a little colour in her face, was quite young again. "'But you look quite pretty in that,' he said. "'Yes, they make me so fine. I hardly know myself,' she answered. "'But when she stood up to walk, the colour went. "'Paul helped her.' half carrying her. At the top of the stairs she was gone. He lifted her up and carried her quickly downstairs, laid her on the couch. She was light and frail. Her face looked as if she were dead, with the blue lips shut tight. Her eyes opened, her blue, unfailing eyes, and she looked at him pleadingly, almost wanting him to forgive her. He held brandy to her lips, but her mouth would not open. All the time she watched him lovingly. She was only sorry for him. The tears ran down his face without ceasing, but not a muscle moved. He was intent on getting a little brandy between her lips. Soon she was able to swallow a teaspoonful. She lay back, so tired. The tears continued to run down his face. "'But,' she panted, "'it'll go off. Don't cry.' "'I'm not doing,' he said. After a while she was better again. He was kneeling beside the couch. They looked into each other's eyes. "'I don't want you to make a trouble of it,' she said. "'No, mother, you'll have to be quite still, and then you'll get better soon.' But he was white to the lips, and their eyes, as they looked at each other, understood. Her eyes were so blue, such a wonderful forget-me-not blue. He felt if they had only been of a different colour, he could have borne it better. His heart seemed to be ripping slowly in his breast. He kneeled there, holding her hand— and neither said anything. Then Annie came in. "'Are you all right?' she murmured timidly to her mother. "'Of course,' said Mrs. Morel. Paul sat down and told her about Blackpool. She was curious. A day or two after, he went to see Dr. Jameson in Nottingham to arrange for a consultation. Paul had practically no money in the world, but he could borrow. His mother had been used to go to the public consultation on Saturday morning, when she could see the doctor for only a nominal sum. Her son went on the same day. The waiting-room was full of poor women, who sat patiently on a bench around the wall. Paul thought of his mother in her little black costume, sitting, waiting likewise. The doctor was late. The women all looked rather frightened. Paul asked the nurse in attendance if he could see the doctor immediately he came. It was arranged so. The women, sitting patiently round the walls of the room, eyed the young man curiously. At last the doctor came. He was about forty, good-looking, brown-skinned. His wife had died, and he, who had loved her, had specialised on women's ailments. Paul told his name and his mother's. The doctor did not remember. "'Number 46, M,' said the nurse, and the doctor looked up the case in his book. "'There is a big lump that may be a tumour, said Paul but dr ansell was going to write you a letter ah yes replied the doctor drawing the letter from his pocket he was very friendly affable busy kind he would come to sheffield the next day what is your father he asked he's a coal miner replied paul not very well off i suppose this i see after this said paul and you smiled the doctor i am a clerk in jordan's appliance factory the doctor smiled at him er to go to sheffield he said putting the tips of his fingers together and smiling with his eyes eight guineas thank you said paul flushing and rising and you'll come tomorrow tomorrow sunday yes can you tell me about what time there is a train in the afternoon there is a central gets in at four-fifteen and will there be any way of getting up to the house shall i have to walk the doctor smiled there is a tram said paul the western park tram the doctor made a note of it thank you he said and shook hands then paul went on home to see his father who was left in charge of minnie walter morel was getting very grey now paul found him digging in the garden he had written him a letter he shook hands with his father hallo son tha has landed then said the father yes replied the son but i'm going back to-night art be guy exclaimed the collier "And I eat that? nat no that's just like me said morel come thy ways in the father was afraid of the mention of his wife. The two went indoors. Paul ate in silence. His father, with earthy hands and sleeves rolled up, sat in the armchair opposite, and looked at him. "'Well, and how is she?' asked the miner at length, in a little voice. "'She can sit up. She can be carried down for tea,' said Paul. "'That's a blessing,' exclaimed Morel. "'I hope we'll soon be having her home, then. "'And what's that Nottingham doctor say?' Is going to-morrow to have an examination of her. Is he, big guy? That's a tidy penny, I'm thinking. Eight guineas. Eight guineas, the miner spoke breathlessly. Well, we mun find it from somewhere. I can pay that, said Paul. There was a silence between them for some time. She says you. she hopes you're getting on all right with Minnie, Paul said. Yes, I'm all right, and I wish as she was, answered Morel. But Minnie's a good little wench, bless her heart. He sat, looking dismal. "'As I'll have to be going at half-past three, said Paul. "'It's a tripe for thee, lad. Eight guineas, and when dost think she'll be able to get as far as this?' "'We must see what the doctors say to-morrow,' Paul said. Morel sighed deeply. The house seemed strangely empty, and Paul thought his father looked lost, forlorn, and old. "'You'll have to go and see her next week, father,' he said. "'I hope she'll be a woman by that time,' said Morel. "'If she's not,' said Paul. "'then you must come.' "'I don't know where I shall find th' money,' said Morel. "'And I'll write to you what the doctor says,' said Paul. "'But that writes is such a fashion, I canna me it out,' said Morel. "'Well, I'll write plain.' It was no good asking Morel to answer, for he could scarcely do more than write his own name. The doctor came. Leonard felt it his duty to meet him with a cab. The examination did not take long. Annie, Arthur, Paul, and Leonard were waiting in the parlour anxiously. The doctors came down. Paul glanced at them. He had never had any hope, except when he had deceived himself. "'It may be a tumour. We must wait and see,' said Dr. Jameson. "'And if it is,' said Annie, "'can you sweal it away?' "'Probably,' said the doctor. Paul put eight sovereigns and a half-sovereign on the table. The doctor counted them, took a florin out of his purse, and put that down, thank you he said i'm sorry mrs morel is so ill but we must see what we can do there can't be an operation said paul the doctor shook his head no he said and even if there could her heart wouldn't stand it is her heart risky asked paul yes you must be careful with her very risky no er uh, no no just take care and the doctor was gone then paul carried his mother downstairs She lay simply, like a child. But when he was on the stairs, she put her arms round his neck, clinging. "'I'm so frightened of these beastly stairs," she said. And he was frightened, too. He wouldn't let Leonard do it another time. He felt he could not carry her. "'He thinks it's only a tumor," cried Annie to her mother, "'and he can sweel it away.' "'I knew he could,' protested Mrs. Morel, scornfully. She pretended not to notice that Paul had gone out of the room, He sat in the kitchen, smoking. Then he tried to brush some grey ash off his coat. He looked again. It was one of his mother's grey hairs. It was so long. He held it up, and it drifted into the chimney. He let go. The long grey hair floated, and was gone in the blackness of the chimney. The next day he kissed her before going back to work. It was very early in the morning, and they were alone. "'You won't fret, my boy,' she said. "'No, mother. No.' It would be silly and take care of yourself yes he answered then after a while and i shall come next saturday and shall i bring my father i suppose he wants to come she replied at any rate if he does you'll have to let him kissed her again and stroked the hair from her temples gently tenderly as if she were a lover shan't you be late she murmured i'm going he said very low "'Still he sat a few minutes, "'stroking the brown and grey hair from her temples. "'And you won't be any worse, mother?' "'No, my son. "'You promise me?' "'Yes, I won't be any worse.' "'He kissed her, held her in his arms for a moment, and was gone. "'In the early sunny morning he ran to the station, "'crying all the way, he did not know what for, "'and her blue eyes were wide and staring as she thought of him. "'In the afternoon he went for a walk with Clara.' they sat in the little wood where bluebells were standing he took her hand you see he said to clara she'll never be better oh you don't know replied the other i do he said she caught him impulsively to her breast try and forget it dear she said try and forget it i will he answered her breast was there warm for him her hands were in his hair it was comforting and he held his arms round her but he did not forget He only talked to Clara of something else, and it was always so. When she felt it coming, the agony, she cried to him, "'Don't think of it, Paul! Don't think of it, my darling!' And she pressed him to her breast, rocked him, soothed him like a child. So he put the trouble aside for her sake, to take it up again immediately he was alone. All the time as he went about he cried mechanically. His mind and hands were busy. He cried he did not know why. It was his blood weeping. He was just as much alone whether he was with Clara or with the men in the White Horse, just himself and this pressure inside him, that was all that existed. He read sometimes. He had to keep his mind occupied, and Clara was a way of occupying his mind. On the Saturday, Walter Morell went to Sheffield. He was a forlorn figure, looking rather as if nobody owned him. Paul ran upstairs. "My father's come," he said, kissing his mother. "'Has he?' she answered, weariedly. The old collier came, rather frightened, into the bedroom. "'How dunna find thee, lass?' he said, going forward and kissing her, in a hasty, timid fashion. "'Well, I'm middling,' she replied. "'I see thou art,' he said. He stood looking down on her. Then he wiped his eyes with his handkerchief. Helpless, and as if nobody owned him, he looked. "'Have you gone on all right?' asked the wife, rather wearily, as if it were an effort to talk to him. Yes, he answered. "'There's a bit behind hand now and again, as you might expect.' "'Does she have your dinner ready?' asked Mrs. Morrell. "'Well, I've had to shout at her once or twice,' he said. "'And you must shout at her if she's not ready. "'She will leave things to the last minute.' She gave him a few instructions. He sat looking at her as if she were almost a stranger to him, before whom he was awkward and humble, and also as if he had lost his presence of mind and wanted to run. This feeling that he wanted to run away, that he was on thorns to be gone from, so trying a situation, and yet must linger because it looked better, made his presence so trying. He put up his eyebrows for misery, and clenched his fists on his knees, so awkward in presence of a big trouble. Mrs. Morel did not change much. She stayed in Sheffield for two months. If anything, at the end she was rather worse, but she wanted to go home. Annie had her children mrs morell wanted to go home so they got a motor-car from nottingham for she was too ill to go by train and she was driven through the sunshine it was just august everything was bright and warm under the blue sky they could all see she was dying yet she was jollier than she had been for weeks they all laughed and talked annie she exclaimed i saw a lizard dart on that rock her eyes were so quick she was still so full of life Morell knew she was coming. He had the front door open. Everybody was on tiptoe. Half the street turned out. They heard the sound of the great motor-car. Mrs. Morell, smiling, drove home down the street. And just look at them all. Come out to see me,' she said. "'But there, I suppose, I should have done the same. How do you do, Mrs. Matthews? How are you, Mrs. Harrison?' They none of them could hear, but they saw her smile and nod, and they all saw death on her face, they said. It was a great event in the street. Morel wanted to carry her indoors, but he was too old. Arthur took her as if she were a child. They had set her a big, deep chair by the hearth, where her rocking-chair used to stand. When she was unwrapped and seated, and had drunk a little brandy, she looked round the room. "'Don't think I didn't like your house, Annie,' she said, "'but it's nice to be in my own home again.' And Morel answered huskily, "'It is, lass, it is.' and Minnie, the little quaint maid, said, And we glad to have ye." There was a lovely yellow revel of sunflowers in the garden. She looked out of the window. "'There are my sunflowers,' she said. End of Chapter 13, Part 2 Read by Tony Foster